Well, if you were unable to attend our church business meeting on Wednesday night, I'm delighted to be able to tell you the news that Hunter and Sindel Tate's little boy was born to them this past Tuesday. Uh, I would encourage you to get in touch to them and, and offer them congratulations. And then also at that particular meeting, Tommy Hogue was affirmed as a el new elder here at Providence Baptist. Welcome, Tommy, being part of the leadership team. We are just delighted that you've uh, allowed yourself to be used by the Lord in this way. Uh, if you uh, haven't had an opportunity to congratulate Tommy, make sure that, that you do so at the end of the service. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and that you teach us through your word. Just as we were able to be nourished by the elements of the supper, we pray, Lord, that we would be even more so by the truth that you have inspired on these pages. We pray, Lord, that we would understand in the midst of it that, that your word is living, it is active, it is working even in this moment in this room. And we pray, Lord, uh, that we would listen well. Listen well, repent, and trust in you all over again. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you will, turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We've arrived near the end of the narrative portion of the sixth major section of Matthew. Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, we'll begin the next extended teaching lesson by Jesus as we conclude this section. But for this morning, let's take a brief moment just to see how Matthew has arranged this controversy with the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, as soon as Jesus made his triumphal entry into the capital city, he encountered opposition from the religious establishment. Our author, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been revealing this to us thematically rather than describing the events chronologically. He has presented us with eight confrontational engagements with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we might even include the Herodians under that last category as well. He began this section with the cursing of the fig tree found in chapter 21 in verses 18 and 19. In that scene, Jesus comes across a fig tree that has leaves, the signs of healthy life, but it lacked fruit. It was not fulfilling its created purpose. So Jesus pronounced a curse upon it. He said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree began to wither instantaneously. This becomes symbolic of the religious leaders in the next eight engagements. They give the appearance of being righteous, but when put to the test, they reveal they have no fruit. If they have been fulfilling the purpose for which they had been designed, they would have repented and recognized Jesus as Messiah. They should have been like John the Baptist and, and pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Instead, they become more stubbornly entrenched in their own positions. And because they're not bearing fruit, what we're about to see in chapter 23 becomes a verbal curse upon them. So I want to cover the next 36 verses here under three headings that will provide our direction for us this morning. First, I want to describe the situation, and then we're going to look at those seven woes that Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees, and through them we shall see that they're arranged in a chiastic form here, and then we will conclude by obeying, uh, or observing here at least, that this is still a modern problem for us today. 
Instead of bearing fruits of repentance, Phariseeism is alive and well and spreads like weeds even in the modern church. And the curse still remains upon this type of living. So again, that's situation, woes, and modern problems. So it's at this point in the narrative that Jesus publicly calls out the Pharisees of Jerusalem. He had already warned the people of their teaching uh, back in chapter 15, verse 57, and also in chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. You can look back on those episodes and see that these were specifically Pharisees from Jerusalem that had traveled all the way to Galilee to observe Jesus' behavior and question him. Jesus called them out then, but this is the first time he is doing so in their territory. He does this while he has the advantage of all of them being together. According to verse 41 of chapter 22, they were all assembled when Jesus tested them about David's Lord from Psalm 110. Apparently, while this had happened, there must have been a crowd of people to witness the spectacle because verse 1 of chapter 23 tells us that Jesus immediately begins to address these witnesses along with his disciples. So while the leadership of the Pharisees are gathered together, Jesus takes the opportunity to condemn them as a group publicly. Talk about making someone angry. It had to be one of those situations where no one present was feeling comfortable. Now, just so we're sure of our terminology here, the word scribes mentioned here was a vocation. These were men that not only made copies of the scriptures, but they were experts in the law. They were consulted as legal counsel whenever cases were brought before the Sanhedrin. So Jesus is addressing not just the Pharisees, but also the experts among the Pharisees. These men would have considered themselves the chief rabbis as they explain the nuances of the law, which explains why he talks about this rabbi and father business a few verses later. Jesus is not addressing two different classes of people. This is the chief teachers of the Pharisees and everyone else associated with them. No wonder Saul was so offended later in Acts chapter 8 that he goes after the followers of Jesus. Their leader is about to condemn the Pharisee way of life and their most learned rabbis. So we might also ask, why just the Pharisees at this juncture? Why not the Sadducees as well? Well, let me give you two reasons. One is simple. Jesus addresses the Pharisee because that is who is present at the time. That one is obvious. The second is more important. The Pharisees were the branch of Judaism that was theologically aligned with Jesus. We went over this last week. Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife and the resurrection of the dead. They believed in supernatural beings. They believed in the sovereignty of God and that the Lord was personally directing their future. They endorsed the entirety of the Old Testament as God's word, and they interpreted it literally. But even more than this, the Pharisees believed it was important to teach all of Yahweh's people the word of God as a means of knowing him. They established synagogues not only across their nation, but around the known world to promote the covenant and God's word. These were all doctrines and activities that Jesus would have endorsed. The Sadducees' power will end when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. But the influence of the Pharisees will endure to the present day. The Pharisees are a much bigger threat to the Lord's people than the Sadducees. 
These will produce men like Saul that will persecute Christians throughout the empire. And even after his conversion, Paul will write to Timothy, these are those that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. So he will instruct them, avoid such people. Therefore, Jesus addresses them particularly. Now notice at the beginning of the pronouncement, our Lord does not dispute their position of authority. He tells the crowd that they sit on Moses' seat. In the ancient world, teachers gave their lessons in a sitting position. The seat of Moses was a metaphor for one who had authority, like Moses, who had mediated God's words to the people. Jesus said, for the most part, the Pharisees have it right. He says the people should observe and practice whatever they tell you as they speak for God, but he makes a caveat. Do what they tell you as they reveal God's word, but not what they do. And essentially, Jesus will open his remarks on the Pharisees by condemning three behaviors here. They preach, but they do not practice what they preach when they do their deeds. They do these deeds in order to be seen by others, and they have prideful attitudes while instructing the people. They preach God's word, proclaim it, but they do not practice it themselves. Now, we're going to get into the specifics of this a little bit later, but by telling people what to do and to think and yet not obeying themselves, they end up placing burdens upon the shoulders of God's people. We'll see a little bit later in verses 23 and 24 that the root of this particular sin is a failure to understand the purpose of God's word. But this laying of burdens upon others is typical of a graceless people. It's very typical of a graceless people. They're more concerned about enforcing the rules upon others than they are about how they live their life in light of God. They have their own sacred cows that become more important than one's relationship to God. Sadly, we still see this in the church. We still have people that are more concerned about what other sinners are watching or hearing or doing or wearing than they are about getting the gospel to these people. Amen. It's always been my observance that once someone receives the gospel, right obedience follows. But for some reason, the expectation is obedience in these certain select areas must come first, otherwise they're not worthy of grace. And obedience in these select areas becomes a litmus test to righteousness. There's usually some outward deed that can be seen by other people rather than heart-related. They say things to others like, I only listen to hymns, I don't listen to secular music. Or you can tell I'm a Christian by the way I dress, or the fact that I attend all the meetings, or I know how to say all the right rhetoric and articulate the correct doctrines. I know all the technical jargon. Or I vote for this particular party all the time. And so on. But hidden in their homes is corruption. And hidden in their hearts is a love for self rather than for God. But they want you to see how they do these outward deeds so that you will think that they are righteous. Jesus has been calling out this behavior ever since the Sermon on the Mount. There he referred to praying before others, giving alms before others, and fasting before others. 
In verse 5 of our chapter this morning, he adds to the list wearing phylacteries and having long fringes on their clothing. The first of these is having little leather pouches that contain God's law, usually the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, that they tied around their heads for others to see, or they tied them around their wrist, and these kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. This comes from a literal interpretation of Deuteronomy 6 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They tied these phylacteries to their bodies as marks of righteousness, completely missing the point that it was obedience to the word that was a demonstration of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The fringe comes from Deuteronomy 22:12. These were tassels that were to be sewn onto the four corners of one's garments to remind them to obey God's word. And of course, these become longer and more extravagant to show others just how holy they were. They do this because they love to feel important and be admired by others. They have to keep up the show. They like being known as the rabbi or the expert in the law. They like being seated in the place of honor and banquets, up front at the synagogues. But Jesus reminds them it is the word that is authoritative. The word of God should humble you. It should reveal that you are unworthy of God's steadfast love, but he gives it to you anyway. He is gracious to us, not because of our sin, but despite our sin. What mercy! And you will recognize a true representative of the Lord by their humility. They will serve fellow sinners and not seeking the attention of others. Verse 11 here, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus had already been instructing this to his disciples in this type of attitude all the way back in chapter 18, verse 4, and chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. The Lord's servant is precisely that a servant. And you can tell a good teacher or preacher in the way that they exalt Christ, not themselves, nor their church, as though somehow the size proves the measurement of their success. But how faithful are they to the Word of God? So now Jesus pronounces a curse upon these men. And before we get into the woes, look at the consistent way that Jesus addresses them. The word blind is found in verses 16, 17, 19, 24, and 26. And also you see the repeated word hypocrite. A hypocrite was a theatrical term that described actors who portrayed something they weren't by wearing a mask. If you removed the mask, then you would see the real person, not the pretender. And by using this term hypocrite, he was telling the Pharisees, you were pretending to be something you are not. Jesus presents seven woes. And the word woe, or ui in Greek, can be either a compassionate alas, or it can be a strong condemnation like it was used in chapter 11, verse 21. They were not unusual in the Old Testament to condemn the unfaithfulness of Israel. We read a series of woes from Habakkuk earlier in the service. Isaiah chapter 5 contains another list of woes. Jesus uses it here in a judicial manner. He is pronouncing judgment upon the Pharisees. 
Now let me point out two data points here. First, each woe stresses one extreme behavior in contrast to another that should have been stressed. It would be like you watching me enter a room with nasty, stinky, moldy filth all over the floor, ankles deep, just piles of it, and I walk to the center of the room and I pick up a gum wrapper and I go off on a tangent about how could anyone leave a gum wrapper on the floor? So note where Jesus emphasizes the priority of the Pharisees over other things that should have been more important to them. And the second data point is that these woes are arranged in the form of a chiasm. Now, we've encountered these before. Chiasms are a mnemonic literary device that allow one to emphasize a major point. The definition is that items are unpacked in reverse order for which they are packed. You can look at your outline and you can kind of see how this works. You see an A on the top, an A on the bottom, a B in the middle, and then another B, then a C, then a C, then a D. It's like Jesus is making a point with each step until he gets to the fourth step, which is the key point, and then he walks backwards, connecting his points to the earlier steps. Each of those steps has a corresponding connection of what preceded it. And it's going to be easier to see how they work in relationship to the Pharisees' behavior if I take them in pairs here. The first step is in verse 13. Jesus pronounces woe upon the Pharisees because they refuse to recognize him as Messiah, who is the entry point to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The kingdom of heaven has been a consistent theme throughout Matthew's gospel. Jesus announced all the way back in chapter 4 that upon his arrival, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And it's been a particular point of emphasis within this section. You will find it in Matthew chapter 19, verses 12, 13, and 23. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1, 21, and 30. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15 and 42. And Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, 21, and 46. Now, all of those references that I just mentioned to you focus not only on the kingdom, but also on how one enters into the kingdom. And that can only happen through the Son, the Messiah the Lord's anointed. The Pharisees not only keep people from entering, but they refuse to enter as well. And then in the seventh woe, which is found in verses 29 through 33, is the first woe's partner here. Jesus compares this attitude to their forefathers. They honor the very tombs of the prophets, and yet it was their ancestors that killed them and persecuted them. They said they would never have done such an evil thing. They would have recognized their authority. And yet, here is Jesus, the Son of God, sitting before him, and they're plotting to kill him. They're acting with the same attitudes towards Jesus as did their ancestors towards the prophets. They refuse to recognize those whom God sends. And not only are they refusing to enter the kingdom, verse 13, but they are condemning themselves to hell in verse 33. Now I'm going to address verses 34 through 36 in just a few minutes, but let's just keep on with the flow of the chiasm within the next pair here. In woes 2 and 6, they are superficially zealous, but they are actually doing harm. In verse 15, they are willing to go all over the world to promote their religion and make proselytes. 
Remember, they established the synagogues for this purpose, but they are promoting a false gospel. They are making converts not unto salvation, but unto destruction. Jesus is not against the zeal of evangelism. He is against the promotion of what is no gospel at all. In verses 27 and 28, prior to the religious festivals, the Pharisees had the tombs of the city whitewashed so the pilgrims would not accidentally bump into one of these graves and make themselves ceremoniously unclean. It was a lot of work and expense to do this every year and required painters to go through cleaning rituals afterwards. As it was Passover season, most likely these whitewashed tombs were visible on the hills surrounding Jerusalem, maybe even where Jesus was sitting. And Jesus says, you go to such extreme measures to paint these tombs, warning people of the corpses inside, but you're not taking note that you are dead on the inside. You're the ones that are unclean. Like the fig tree, they have leaves, but they bear no fruit. Your emphasis on graves doesn't cure your sin problem. It looks zealous, but you should be promoting a heart towards God, just as their proselytizing should have been doing. And from woes 3 and 5, we see they do this because they have a misguided use of the Scriptures. The law was not to achieve holiness. The law was given to show that men and women, boys and girls, are not holy and that God is. They are sinners and can never measure up. They need Almighty God to intervene and atone for their lack of holiness. They need to demonstrate their trust and faith that God is good and holy by their obedience to the law. Therefore, how we interpret the Bible becomes a test. Do we think we can become holy, earn holiness through our meticulous obedience to the law? Or, and notice the nuance here, are we showing that we love God for who he is through our obedience and counting on his grace and mercy even though we can never measure up? How we interpret the Bible reveals our underlying motivation for obedience. One way believes that it is earned and possibly even entitled. The other is a demonstration of love to God who is merciful despite our sin. In verses 16 through 22 under Woe 3, Jesus shows just how ridiculous their interpretations have become. A Pharisee could not swear by the name of Jehovah or Yahweh, that was considered taking the Lord's, God's name in vain. So they came up with other alternatives, such as swearing by the temple or the gold of the temple or the altar itself or the offering one gives to the temple. This juggling of terms is ridiculous because all of it belongs to God. They're adding to the law these degrees so that they can show how serious they are about particular commitments. Jesus addressed this, too, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, there's no need for swearing. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person that tells the truth. And in the companion woe of verses 25 to 26, under the fifth one, Jesus addresses their need for ritual cleanliness of dishes that they eat and they drink from, but they have no concern for their inner hearts, which are unclean. 
They don't think the underlying heart motivations are important. They are not obeying the scriptures so that they may become pleasing to God by resembling his attributes. They think they can look clean on the outside, and that is sufficient. They've completely missed the point that the law does not have loopholes. It reveals just how depraved we are. You either love God or you don't. And then we reach the inner woe, the fourth one, verses 23 through 24. This is the real indictment. It was their fundamental failure to recognize the thrust of the Scriptures. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now drawing from Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 27.30, the Pharisees have become obsessed with tithing down to one's herbs and spices and completely neglected what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. They're going to the trouble of straining the wine they drink, lest they accidentally drink a gnat, which would make them unclean, and yet Jesus says, you are swallowing an issue that is as big as a camel. And I love the way that Jesus puts this. He's not saying there are parts of the law that are irrelevant. All of it is God's word. But there are weightier matters that we should be more concerned about that require more of our attention than others. And Jesus, the Son of God, says those are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That is what the Bible deals with. How can a man or woman stand justly before a holy God? How can one expect mercy when they know they will never measure up? Why does God remain faithful to us even when we are faithless? And how does our faithfulness apply in our obedience to the law, especially considering that we always sin against God? These are the major concerns, not how much mint or cumin you tithe. All of the scriptures point us to the coming of the Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul, who called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees, taught to the church in Rome. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. This is found on page 941 of your Pew Bible. Paul writes these words to a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles learning to live and congregate together. Paul wants to show them their commonality and how they were saved. And as we read this passage, note how closely it relates to these two verses back in Matthew 23. Remember, Jesus says, the weightier matters of the Word of God is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Romans chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest, or has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now note that he considers what he is about to teach is taught by all of the law and the prophets here. This is the underlying weightier matter. This is what all of the Old Testament writers were concerned with. When Paul writes about righteousness, he's talking about right standing before God. How can one be right when they constantly sin against the Lord? Paul has just said that righteousness is manifested apart 
from the law. And here's how, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith, that's one of our key words, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's our word justice, by his grace as a gift. That's mercy. How do we receive it as a gift? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those are our three words, justice, mercy, faith. This is the key to unlocking Scripture. According to Paul, the former Pharisee of Pharisees, this has been God's plan all along. This is the answer to justice. This is the answer to how we receive mercy. This is the answer to faithfulness. Christ Jesus, the Messiah, came into the world to save sinners. Praise God. And the Pharisees were completely missing the point. Now turn back again to your Bibles in Matthew 23 as Jesus concludes this pronouncement. He finishes with this warning. And it's not surprising that he calls them snakes here. Remember, it was the serpent that lied and led Adam and Eve astray. When we do our study later on in Genesis, we'll see that he's making a statement about a connection to that, about being the seed of the serpent. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is his question. How will they escape eternal damnation? Jesus is going to offer more mercy here, but he does so expecting that in their stubbornness, they're going to reject it. Verse 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. This is what he does in the Great Commission. This is what the book of Acts is all about. Some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus sends out the message of the gospel, but he expects them to reject it. Verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. That's a prophet that's mentioned in 2 Chronicles 24, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Which if you read Acts, you will see that all of this did happen within a generation. Jesus sends out his disciples, and the Jewish leaders persecuted them. Now that we have a full comprehension of this, we, we need to consider the modern Pharisee. We still have blind hypocrites among us. They're playing a role, but if we remove the mask, we will discover they're not what they portray. They are dead on the inside. Now, I really want to emphasize this because this is one of the last opportunities I'm going to have in Matthew that we're going to be able to specifically warn you if you have the heart of a Pharisee. No one likes to think they're a Pharisee. But the first step towards healing is admitting your sin. Jesus' warning here is that you can know all the correct doctrines and still be unsaved. 
You can outwardly look highly religious, but on the inside, you're still unclean. You can sit under the preaching of the word week in and week out, and yet you're missing the weightier matters. So here's a test and three questions to determine if you have the heart of the Pharisee. Question number one, what is your underlying motivation for obeying God's word? What is your motivation in obeying God's word? Is it because you love God and you want to resemble Christ-likeness? Or do you think by being obedient, you either gain God's affection or at least maintain some kind of status before him? One of those two is deadly. You can't earn what is given as a gift. Number two, are you more concerned about others' behavior than you are your own heart before a holy God? I saw a strong question to be asking us these days. If you're more concerned about your own heart, I've been so convicted over this lately. (laughs) If you're more concerned about your own heart and you see just how much residual sin is still there and yet you're still receiving the grace and the mercy of God, you will become graceful towards others by recognizing that none of us deserve God's love. But if you're more concerned about the behavior of other people, then congratulations, you are a card-carrying legalist. You preach, but you do not practice the gospel within your own heart. Number three, are you the type of person that likes to be perceived as right all the time? You covet the role of expertise among others. You must be right. There's no servant heart within you. There is no humility. You always have to be the right one. If this is you, today is the day that you need to repent. You need to quit trying to earn God's favor. You need to focus on the state of your own heart. And you need to recognize that despite being knowledgeable, you don't have all the answers. There's only one way to remedy all of this. Only one way. And that is through Jesus Christ alone. That's why he came, folks. To save us from these hearts that that are constantly feeling like we've got to live up to some measurement. He lived up to it for us. That's why he wants us to put our faith in him. There's this constant behavior that that causes us to focus on other people and be so consumed with what other people are doing. And the gospel says, no, no, let's talk about you. Let's talk about where you are before God and how you're living out the gospel. And there's this constant desire to be prideful and to say, I'm always right. I'm always right. And the gospel should be coming into your heart right now and reminding you, you've at least got this wrong. You need Jesus 
He's Lord. You are not. Jesus provides all of that for us. How could we not want to run into the arms of a Savior that loves us despite our sin? Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that by what we have just read, that we will begin to evaluate what we are placing or investing our lives in. I pray, Lord, that we would have clear eyes to see that if we are basing them on our own works alone before you, then help us to see with the same eyes that you gave the Apostle Paul that we consider all things rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to surrender these ideas that we can earn our salvation, or that if we are just good enough, you'll pour out your affections on us. Oh, you have already poured out more affection, more love than we can imagine through what Christ Jesus did on our behalf. Oh, Lord, help us to be humble in this moment, to submit, to surrender, and in doing so, remove the burden that has been on our shoulders to recognize that all we need is Jesus Christ. Let that be our truth, our mantra, our prayer for today, that all we have is Christ. Let us see the beauty and the value of that and know that it is enough. We pray this because of what Christ has done. Amen.